Welcome to the History of Chemistry podcast. I'm Steve Cohen, your host, and this is episode 26, Color Me Synthetic. Recall the fondness of two early American presidents, Adams and Jefferson, for applied chemistry. In this episode, we look at the nascent chemical industry in the early 19th century, particularly that of pigments and dyes. Thanks to those who already support this podcast. Support the continuation of this podcast at Patreon. The website is www.patreon.com forward slash the history of chemistry. For this episode, we return to the early 18th century and pigments used in European artistic works, specifically blue pigments. Using a good blue color in paintings, for example, was a difficult choice in those days. Ultramarine was a very expensive but high-quality blue pigment derived from a mineral, lapis lazuli, a semi-precious stone that had to be imported from Afghanistan. Indigo was an organic pigment, but it fades with time and sun. Azurite was another inorganic mineral used for blue, but in water its color shifted to green. Which does one use? Fugitive colors, those that shift color based on time or environment, or expensive ones? By accident, Johann Jakob Diesbach, a Swiss paint manufacturer, offered a fourth choice. He typically made an intense red pigment called cochineal red lake from crushed cochineal insects, iron sulfate plus potash. The cochineal insects come from South America, Central America, and what is now the southwestern USA, and became a valuable export to Europe for colorants. In one particular batch of cochineal dye, the color wasn't scarlet, but pale pink. Diesbach tried to concentrate this pink solution down, but it became purple, then eventually deep blue. This confused him, so he contacted the seller of the materials involved. The seller was a German alchemist, Johann Konrad Dippel. The seller and buyer examined the source reactants and discovered that the potash Dippel sold was contaminated with bone oil, a thick tarry liquid Dippel made by heating and distilling bones. The end result was that the oil contained remnants of blood, which contains iron. After some time determining exactly what went wrong in the process, a description of Diesbach's invention appeared in a letter to the president of the Royal Academy of Sciences, who turned out to be Gottfried Leibniz, a mathematician who invented calculus independently of Isaac Newton. By early 1709, the pigment had come to be called Prussian blue. Prussian blue is, in modern terminology, an iron ferrocyanide, an inorganic compound. Prussian blue was the first modern synthetic pigment, with one-tenth the price of ultramarine and ten times the coverage. And all of a sudden, 18th century paintings became alive with blues, whether in skies or clothing. The first known use of Prussian blue in an artwork is in Dutch painter Pieter van der Werf's Entombment of Christ from 1709, 
where the pigment appears in the sky and a woman's blue clothing. Antoine Watteau, the French Rococo painter, was an avid user of Prussian blue in his later works. Various shades of Prussian blue also became popular in interior design of the time as a wall paint color. Chemistry thus transformed art. Another synthetic pigment was discovered by the Irish chemist Peter Wolf in 1771 in his report called "A Method of Dyeing Wool and Silk of a Yellow Color with Indigo" in the journal Philosophical Transactions of the Royal Society of London. He obtained this compound by treating indigo dissolved in water with nitric acid, and got brilliant yellow crystals. By the early years of the 19th century, the French chemist Chevreul was able to make this compound, called picric acid, from a variety of resins, but also from coal tar, a common gunk found in the early industrial era. Auguste Laurent himself noted in 1841 that. For some time now, picric acid has been used in the dyeing of silk. It gives a beautiful yellow color, resistant to washing, provided the fabric has before been mordanted with alum and cream of tartar. Wool can also be dyed by picric acid. Cotton, however, mordanted or not, does not take up any color from it. A mordant is a compound that firmly affixes a dye to cloth. So it does not wash out. The word itself is from Latin to bite. But picric acid has another problem. It is explosive, and we shall re-encounter it when we discuss chemical warfare. William Prout, whom we encountered with his idea that all atoms were built from hydrogen atoms, also discovered a dye in 1818. His contribution was a compound called murexide. A red to purple-hued chemical formed from nitric acid plus uric acid to make purpuric acid. He then added ammonia to purpuric acid to give murexide. It was, however, a rather expensive chemical to produce, so it was much less commonly used. Given the influence that chemistry and its industry began having on Western society in the early 19th century, I asked James Brazell to talk a little about the effects of chemistry on literature of the 19th century. He is a professor emeritus at the College of New Jersey, where he taught for 34 years in the English department. His course on the Romantic era included works by Goethe, Heinrich von Kleist. And E. T. A. Hoffman, though he was unable to talk with you directly, he asked me to read his words. When Steve asked me to discuss how chemistry influenced literature at this time, I immediately thought of a novel by Johann Wolfgang von Goethe, the greatest writer in German literature. Goethe is famous for being the author of such classics as. The Sorrows of Young Werther and Faust, which have reverberated through the literature of Europe and indeed the world, I am going to discuss his novel *Elective Affinities*, first published in 1809. And the first thing I want to say about it is that it is the first literary work in the world to refer to chemistry in its title. 
Writers had referred to alchemy before, but the title elective affinities was a scientific term used by chemists in Goethe's day to refer to a fundamental process they were trying to understand, how certain compounds undergo changes when they come into contact. By deliberately choosing this title for his novel, Goethe is saying that the science of chemistry is fundamental to understanding life and human interaction. Goethe is saying that human values are grounded in the study of nature, not the study of theology. And as a novelist, he is employing a chemical concept as a metaphor for human love and desire. You should know that Goethe was actively doing scientific research throughout his career. He wrote a book called *The Theory of Color*. Challenging the findings of Isaac Newton in the field of optics, he studied mineralogy in order to increase the yield of silver mines in his territory. He studied human anatomy and discovered the intermaxillary bone in the jaw. Goethe was a lyric poet, a playwright, and a novelist, but he was also knowledgeable about the latest findings in science. Goethe's master of the discourse of chemistry, as it was known in his day. Is evident at the very beginning of his novel *Elective Affinities*. The plot involves a recently married couple, Edouard and Charlotte, who live on a large estate. It is the second marriage for both. Edouard is a rich baron in the prime of his life. Charlotte is an intelligent, cultured woman. They are quietly happy, improving their gardens during the day and playing the flute and the piano together in the evening. Then Edward proposes inviting his lifelong friend, the captain, to stay with them. The captain's technical proficiency and work ethic bring order and efficiency to the previously chaotic estate, lifting the spirits of both Edward and Charlotte. One evening, they are having a conversation, and the subject turns to chemistry. Charlotte wants the captain's practical advice on how to prevent poisoning from lead glazes. And from the green patina or verdigris that forms on copper pots, but she is also fascinated by the technical term elective affinities, in German, die Wahlverwandtschaften. The captain tells her that the term refers to quote those kinds of substance that rapidly combine and interact when brought together, most determinedly seek each other out, combine, modify each other. And form through their interaction a new compound. What we call limestone, for example, is more or less pure calcium oxide, closely bound together by a volatile acid, better known in its gaseous state. If you put a piece of limestone in dilute sulfuric acid, the acid attacks the lime and turns it into gypsum. The unstable gaseous acid evaporates in the form of sulfur. In this instance, it almost seems. As if the substances choose one combination in preference to the other.、Unquote. But Charlotte objects. Quote, I would never speak of a choice here, but rather of necessity. These figures of speech are clever and amusing, but human beings are so many stages higher than these basic substances. And although we've been rather free with such splendid words as elective and affinities, we might do well to take a look at ourselves. And give due thought to the meaning of such words in this connection. I, for my part, know plenty of cases where apparently inseparable intimacies between two people were dissolved by the accidental arrival of a third party, and one of those who seemed so firmly united 
was driven out into the empty air. At this point, Charlotte's husband Edward speaks up. Quote, Chemists are much more gallant. They add a fourth substance so that no one substance ends up alone. Unquote. And the captain goes on to explain quote, where the attraction, affinity, and separation can be shown to take place in a crosswise pattern, where four substances originally united by twos are brought together and, abandoning their original combinations, join to make new compounds. In this kind of separation and combination, repulsion and attraction, some higher destiny really does seem to manifest itself. One almost feels like endowing such substances with the ability to exercise choice and will, so that the term elective affinities seems perfectly justified. Unquote. The major action of the novel begins immediately after this discussion when Charlotte invites a beautiful young woman of 18 to come to the estate. Her name is Otilia, and she is the orphaned daughter of a close friend of Charlotte's. Charlotte regards Otilia as a foster daughter, and is grateful not only for her companionship, but also for her gracious assistance in running the household. Otilia has an intuitive sense of the needs of others and promptly attends to them. Soon, a strong, almost irresistible attraction develops between Edouard and Otilia. At the same time, Charlotte and the captain are drawn towards each other. In the character of the captain, Goethe has created a new male role model for 19th century Germany, an educated technocrat who is able to administer the emerging nation-state. And in the character of Otilia, Goethe has created one of the most remarkable young women in 19th century literature. Her distinctively feminine understanding of the world and human life is one of the revelations of the novel. Elective affinities comes to a shattering, tragic end, however. The love of Edward and Otilia does not result in their longed-for marriage, but in her death through starving herself and his death from grief soon afterwards. And behind it all is the fateful working out of elective affinities, a term from chemistry of Goethe's day that he chose to suggest the mystery of human love and desire. We'll be right back. Hi, and welcome to Hiss and Tell, a cat podcast where we delve deep into the fascinating world of feline behavior with your host, me, Christina Wilson, a professional animal behaviorist. Each episode features insightful discussions with leading veterinarians, dedicated researchers and scientists, experts in cat behavior and training, and so much more. Join me as we decode the complexities of pet loss, unravel the mysteries of feline health and behavior, and discover the latest research findings. I'll meet you at Hiss and Tell. Next, we turn to the 1840s in England. At that time, most great organic chemists were German, and Her Majesty's government in the United Kingdom tried to entice German chemists to come in order to remedy the lack of chemists in Britain. One of those German chemists who emigrated was August Hoffmann, a student of Liebig, to be a professor at the Royal College of Chemistry. In the 1850s, Hoffmann hired an 18-year-old student assistant, William Perkin. He commented to Perkin about whether it was possible to synthesize the organic compound quinine, 
which was a drug used to counteract malaria. Quinine was only found in the bark of a South American tree called cinchona. This made quinine difficult and expensive to obtain. First extracted in pure state around 1820, it also turns out to be an extremely bitter-tasting chemical. The powdered form was patented in 1858 by Erasmus Bond in London as tonic water, and Johann Jakob Schwepp created his version in 1870. Fun factoid: tonic water glows a beautiful light blue under ultraviolet light because of the quinine. If you have access to an ultraviolet lamp or ultraviolet LED flashlight, try it sometime. But we are not quite at the tonic water stage here. Back to Hoffman. His interest from his doctoral dissertation was of coal tar. If one could synthesize quinine from coal tar, known to be a mixture of all sorts of fun organic compounds, this way Britain would not be dependent on tropical trade for quinine. Necessary for all her colonies, from India to the Caribbean. Let's also recall that chemical structures, a la Kekulé and Cooper, were still unknown, and organic synthesis techniques were still primitive. Knowing what organic chemists now know, Hoffman's idea was impossible. But even so, Perkin himself got extremely interested in this idea, and went home for spring break, eighteen fifty-six. To his laboratory on the top floor of his family's residence, he added potassium dichromate to impure allyl toluidine, and created a dark brown crud in his glassware. Then he tried the same addition of potassium dichromate to impure aniline sulfate, giving a black crud. As he was trying to rinse it out, he noticed a purplish color. He added alcohol to the crud and got a wonderful violet color. As the crud dissolved in the alcohol, it stained a wiping rag and dyed silk a beautiful hue. Perkins suddenly realized he might have a new pigment on his hands. He posed a question, sending a sample of purple silk as to the value of his new compound to the Scottish company Pullars. They responded, "If your discovery does not make the goods too expensive." It is decidedly one of the most valuable that has come out for a very long time. This color is one which has been very much wanted in all classes of goods, and could not be had fast on silk, and only at great expense on cotton yarns. The best lilac we have is done by only one house in the United Kingdom, and they get any price they wish for it, but it does not stand the tests that yours does, and fades by exposure to air. In other words, if you can do this cheaply, you've got a gold mine on your hands. Perkin dropped out of college, patented his mess, and invested family money into a factory for his dye. Six months later, he was producing what he called aniline purple. Word of this dye got to the fashionable French textile industry, which began calling the color mauve, M-A-U-V-E. And a huge craze in mauve clothing appeared in Victorian fashions, kicked off when first Empress Eugenie, consort of Napoleon III, sported clothing in mauve, and shortly thereafter Queen Victoria wore a dress of that color to her eldest daughter's wedding. Perkin eventually retired from his factory, a rich and famous man, 
at the ripe old age of 35. The writer Charles Dickens even mentioned the effects of mauve. Dickens edited a journal called All the Year Round, in which he described the mauve fad. As I look out of my window, the apotheosis of Perkins' purple seems at hand. Purple hands wave from open carriages. Purple hands shake each other at doors. Purple hands threaten each other from opposite sides of the street. Purple, striped gowns, cram barouches, jam-up cabs, throng streamers, fill railway stations, all flying countryward like so many migrating birds of purple paradise. His magazine said of mauve, It is rich and pure and fit for anything, be it fan, slipper, gown, ribbon, handkerchief, tie, or glove. It will lend luster to the soft, changeless twilight of ladies' eyes, and it will take any shape to find an excuse to flutter round her cheek, to cling as the wind blows it up to her lips, to kiss her foot, to whisper at her ear. O Perkins's purple, thou art a lucky and a favored color. The American Chemical Society held a 50th anniversary gala event in 1906, celebrating Perkins' mauve discovery, and gave him a medal in honor of his work. All the scientists attending wore mauve bow ties. Since then, the American Chemical Society offers a Perkin medal annually for innovation in applied chemistry resulting in outstanding commercial development. Many of the chemists we shall encounter later won Perkin medals. I noted in the introductory episode that the American Chemical Society claims to be the largest chemical society in the world. But a few years after Perkins' mauve discovery, Kekulé and Cooper's molecular structures gave chemists the beginnings of the tools to examine exactly how chemical reactions rearranged atoms, and even gave ideas of predicting new reactions. By 1864, Hoffman returned to his native Germany and continued to research synthetic organic chemistry. German chemistry remained the center of organic synthesis through the First World War, and this effort soon paid off in more synthetic dyes or new methods of synthesizing existing dyes. If you recall Bayer, who invented the idea of strain theory, he was also involved in dye synthesis. His particular interest was in cheap industrial methods for making the compound indigo, which was then harvested from the woad plant. His work began in 1867 and eventually succeeded in killing off woad agriculture because of the ease of making synthetic indigo by 1880. By 1900, synthetic indigo took over from natural indigo. Current production of synthetic indigo is something like 5,000 tons per year, used almost entirely for dyeing genes. Each pair of genes requires only about 10 grams of the compound. Bayer noted that he was interested in indigo from at least age 13 when he noted its peculiar odor. He also found that his interest in organic synthesis was supported by other odors, such as from peppermint, camphor, orange, and oil of turpentine. Then, in 1868, one of Bunsen's students, Carl Grabe, and his associate, Carl Lieberman, a student of Bayer, were able to make alizarin. 
Alizarin is an orangey-red compound found in the plant madder, cultivated and used since ancient times as a natural dye stuff, which, depending upon the mordants, can produce pink through dark brown through purple. Madder was also used for centuries as a pigment for painting. Alizarin was first isolated in 1826 by French chemist Pierre Robiquet. Graeber's synthesis made it an industrial process, which caused quite an upheaval in French agriculture. The main source of madder. Other dyes that began appearing at this time were nitromethadine, a bright yellow compound, in 1849, fuchsine, a magenta dye, in 1859, aniline blue, and the first yellow-colored azo dye in 1863. Not only did this have an influence on fashion and textiles, the world of art was transformed by these pigments as well. All of chemical industry was transformed by dyes and pigments. The British chemical firm ICI, the German chemical firms Hoechst and Agfa, plus the Swiss company Novartis, all were founded in large measure on the dye industry. Later, in 1925. Many of the German firms consolidated into a conglomerate called IG Farben, German for Interessengemeinschaft Farbenindustrie, or Dye Industry Syndicate. It became a powerful donor to the Nazi Party and eventually enslaved people in the German concentration camps, as well as supplying the poison gas for death chambers. After World War II, the IG Farben monolith was split up at the wishes of the Allies. So politics and genocide were also influenced by the dye industry. For more details on this topic, I recommend the book by Joseph Borkin called "The Crime and Punishment of IG Farben." In our next episode, we continue our look at the early chemical industry. This time, producing a variety of inorganic compounds for the public. Until then, brave the elements. Thank you for listening to the History of Chemistry podcast.